32 counties. United by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United United Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland and elsewhere beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. As you know, if if you're a regular listener, that this podcast runs entirely on the fuel generated from our Patreon. Um, So if you are feeling like you are getting a lot from this podcast, if you're enjoying it, if you would like to support our work, you can put some uh, renewable sources of petrol in our tank over at patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. And we've had some interesting um, episodes over the past week. We have a collaboration with Connor Habib on uh, Utopia. If you want to listen to um, the episodes we've been doing with him, they also contain some listener exercises about how you can imagine um, and become involved in a utopian process, which is very helpful and therapeutic right now. And we also just released a bonus episode with Friend of the Pod, the author of Republic of Shame, that amazing book, uh, Kayla. Hogan, who talks to us about an event that's happening in the National Concert Hall uh, with the International Literature Festival Dublin called Breaking the Silence. That's on uh, this Saturday, 29th of May. But this is our weekly episode back on track. And what are we talking about this week, Andrea? Oh my God, Ina, it is uh, something happened at the weekend or last week. And I don't really know the background to it. So this is a really good episode because it's about piracy in the skies. Um, It's how Michal Martin actually described the extraordinary audacious takedown of a Ryanair passenger uh, on its way from Athens to Lithuania when a fake bomb threat concocted by the Belarusian leadership forced the plane to land so that they could arrest the journalist Roman Protosevich, there you go. (laughs) Who has been critical of the Belarus dictator Lukashenko. Yeah, so untangle all of this context and look at what happens next. We're joined by brilliant journalist, uh, co-founder of one of my favourite news outlets, Coda Story, uh, Natalia Antalava. She's spent time with Lukashenko. Um, she's reported extensively uh, on that area. She's really great insights. Um, and you're going to really want to stick around for, for this chat because it just gives a very, very, very good context of what's been happening in Belarus and what's going to happen next. But first, it's the state of the nation. Andrea, how are you feeling about what's been going on in Ireland the past week? What have you got for me? Okay, first up, Ireland has become the first country in the world to label Israel's illegal settlements and land grabs um, as de facto annexation of Palestinian land, which is humongous to for, I suppose we have so many like ties to Palestine and we have such a similar journey um, that it we there's a lot of uh, time for the Palestinians and uh, understanding and empathy. Um, so yeah, we've become the first country to do that. Um, how, like, I, I, we, what's going to happen next? Is that going to stop uh, what's going on? Who knows? But we would hope so. Yeah, so it's a big step for an EU state to make. Um, and I think when I was just kind of looking at what people were saying about it in different parts of the world um, on social media, and, and it really seems to have had a big impact in terms of the solidarity aspect of what's going on. Um Closer to home, the Bespera side is back in the news. We actually talk about that with Keelan Hogan on, on the podcast, on the bonus podcast. What's going on there? 
uh, planning for the apartment complex that was due to go up there is denied, um, which can only be seen as a good thing. And how that was going ahead uh, was very bizarre. Obviously, um, something needs to reflect what happened and to honour not honorish, but to what's the word I want to say? Well, to memorialize, I suppose. Memorialize it. it. Um, and given the current uh, trauma we have uh, as well with apartments and planning and all that jazz, it was just the meaning of, of hell, to be honest. Mm. Speaking uh, of things being refused. I love I, I love the little interjection. And go on the intro. Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but Brilliant Bar has lost all its four licenses um, after the brunch they had uh, during lockdown. Um, the judge said that they couldn't think of anything else that they could possibly do, um, that apparently there was undercover people going in and they were pushing the boundaries the whole time. Um, but you have to wonder, as often we do, how it happened at the same time as Golfgate. How the hell is the hotel still grand? Why is Berlin uh, taking this all on its shoulders? And again, it, it keeps going back to the the problem we have in Ireland of people having a good time. And I know, obviously, that it was uh, during restrictions and it wasn't um, meant to be, but we, we have this almost horror on our shoulders um, that we shut that down, shut that down. Um, so I think there's a lot, I, I think it, it feels very unfair. Yeah, I think it's about proportion as well, you know, like, is it proportionate if they, if they can't identify, you know, specific breach of the law? Is it proportionate for a venue to lose its license and obviously people lose their jobs, you know, and in an already really stretched industry? I'm sure there's been plenty of, um, uh, you know, different publicans around the country and things like that um, been given warnings or up in the courts. Uh, obviously, there's been lots of um, chatter in 2020 about she beans across Ireland. Um, yet, I guess, you know, a place that gets loads of publicity because there was a, a video or two on social media of people pouring shots. Uh, no, <laughs> not into it, to be yeah. honest. It's Banana Town, uh, also Banana Town. So what we need in this country right now is the Dublin by-election. It is just the perfect antidote to what we need at this pissy time. Uh, it's just the juice factor of a million. And in amongst that is the juice factor of James Gagan, um, who's been put forward as a Fine Gael, uh, candidate and what, into what has become a very messy campaign. Um, and I, I came across a, a very funny tweet the other day of someone who was like, all they needed to do was put Kate O'Connell on the ticket, but they just couldn't do it. And now we have this shit show going on. It's like, well, there you go. So James Gagan, who is, uh, went off to found Renewa with Lucinda Creighton, the very uh, famous anti-abortion party um, that was set up around a pill and then starts tweeting out about how on this day how glorious it is that repeal was uh, brought over the line and he has not been uh, doing very well on on the internet since then. <laughs> That's a bit of a bit of an understatement there. I mean it's it's interesting isn't it like I guess you know like you're saying about Kate O'Connell and you know it's not James Gagan's fault that he is who he is. Um, but he is the candidate that 
Finnegal chose. And unfortunately, I think, although he may get over the line via the Finnegal party machine and pulling on the levers of people in, in kind of wealthy areas to get them out to vote in that constituency, you know, he's he, he, he doesn't necessarily speak to the culture, shall we say, of the moment. Um, and... I, I think the 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 torpedoing of his Twitter presence with um, a repeal related tweet but really kind of screws it quite screws the online aspect of it quite early, and, and online will be a huge element of this campaign because canvassing is limited in some in some respects. But also coming out to be uh, the voice of a generation locked out of the housing market. Wow, really, James? Do you know what party you're in? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. It kind of reminds me of the that first episode of Girls, you know. I think I'm the voice of a voice of the generation, or at least a voice of a generation. You know? <laughs> banana Town. Uh, also, Banana Town. Dominic Cummings has uh, been given his all um, in his how we dealt with COVID scenario. The thing I find really bizarre about this whole situation is that people are like, "Oh God, the Prime Minister is really going to be on the cutting block now." It's like. He's not telling anything we all didn't know. He's literally saying every single thing that was in the public forum. Like, why is it only now that everyone's like, oh God, Boris, you're in, you're in the shit now. So true. And it really reminds me of Trump. You know, he said this racist thing. Oh, and he said this other racist thing. And he said this other outrageous thing. And it's like, we know. It was, and all it, it was everywhere. Yeah. And like, if people, I do feel it, it is that, uh, Brecht quote again you know as the crimes pile up they become invisible and the bar has been set so low it becomes very hard to raise and the reality is if people in Britain you know really really didn't want Boris the likes Boris Johnson or his likes to be the Prime Minister then he wouldn't be Prime Minister probably or at least there would be like a massive protest movement against him and there isn't mm. so you know and it's still every time he Everyone's at the pubs and clubs, so they don't give a shit. They're like, yeah, yeah but like, bro. there's an issue with, there's a massive issue with, you know, engagement as well, you know, and every time, I mean, look, certainly looking from an Irish perspective, you're seeing these absolutely outrageous uh, incompetencies and, and terrible people and, you know, tens of thousands of people dying. And then, you know, Labour get trashed in like, the kind of local elections. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So like yeah. <laughs> they're voting for, like people are vote. more people are voting for the Tories and the Tories are in and this is how they are and people are still voting for them. So, you know, there you go. It's, there you depre- go. it's depressing. <laughs> there you go. Take that, England. <laughs> uh, and finally, on our State of the Nation, uh, powers were extended by government to enforce uh, regulations and there's a bit um, of pushback from ICCL of being the main ones and sock dams are coming out strong against it of how um, there was no talk to the opposition about extending these powers that it, we surely they are not essential at this stage of and in terms of the weight of them and how um, we, there needs to be I'm not very good with language this week how there needs to be proper um, analysis of them to have them as the right amount because they're a bit strong for where we are right now. And going on for a long time into the future. Um, Okay, thank you for that State of the Nation. And now it's time for our main topic this week, which is what is going on in Belarus. (music) 
So the drama and outrageousness of um, a Ryanair plane being taken out of the skies by a fabricated bomb threat so that a European autocrat could arrest a journalist critic is kind of like a storyline even Homeland or Scandal would barely dream up. But that was the situation last week as the European Union scrambled to respond, as did Ireland, uh, considering it was an, an Irish airline in Ryanair. But amongst the chaos, it's often tough to get contacts. And that's why this week we're giving you a bit of an explainer on the situation. Uh, Natalia Antalava is the editor of Coda Story, an amazing news outlet with a special focus on, amongst other things, authoritarian tech, disinformation and attacks on science. They also do a lot of stories about Russia um, and are based in Georgia and New York City. Natalia is an Emmy nominated journalist who, before co-founding Coda, worked as a reporter in uh, West Africa and for the BBC across Central Asia, the Middle East. She's worked um, on undercover investigations and human rights abuses in everywhere from Uzbekistan to Yemen, Burma. She's also written for The Guardian, uh, The New Yorker, Washington Post, amongst other publications. Have I got everything in there, Natalia? Well, a very detailed introduction. Um, it's great Some to of talk. the things that I didn't remember myself. It's great to talk to you again. Before we, before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about CODA for people who are less familiar? At CODA, we report on the roots of global crisis. Uh, we are a thematic newsroom, which means that instead of looking at the latest and sort of events, the news in outside of their context, we really try to focus on the context in which the events happen. Um, and we are covering the overarching themes that are changing the world and societies we live in. So it's at the moment, uh, disinformation, authoritarian technology, basically abuse of technology to promote authoritarian agendas, the war on science. So all pretty relevant stuff, I'd say, considering uh, considering COVID situation, where that which which brings it all together in, in, in some ways, but um, you know our coverage predates COVID. We've got reporters and editors all, all around the world trying to connect these themes um, and create the co- co- connections between them. Um, so it's codastory.com, and as a nonprofit newsroom, we also have a membership scheme. So check it all out. Sorry, couldn't resist the plug. <laughs> Excellent, good work. But listen, let's talk about Belarus for a second. How has um, Lukashenko's grip on power um, and indeed his popularity, perceived popularity changed in the past few years, in your opinion? You know, I was thinking uh, just uh, earlier today about four hours that I spent with Lukashenko in um, about 10 years ago now when I was doing um, a piece on him for for the BBC. Um, and, um, you know, he's he's this big, imposing man, a very charismatic man, a very non-PC thing to say, imagine, considering that he is Europe's last dictator. Uh, but, um, you know, that's definitely one of the reasons, I think, why he has managed to stay in power um, for um, decades uh, since the breakup of the Soviet Union really has been completely unchallenged. And at the time, you know, I remember him uh, taking me up to the window of his presidential palace and and sort of uh, showing me outside and the window, like gesturing towards the outside and saying, look at this. How many security guards do you see? How many people, how much security is out there? See, I have nothing to worry about um, because p- people love me. And um, of course, even at that time, that was definitely not the case. Uh, but he had managed again and again over the years to suppress all opposition and all dissent. And he was very 
he seemed very confident, very comfortable with that label of being the Europe's last dictator. And it's amazing to think that Roman, uh, who was the journalist who was arrested, um, uh, whose plane was hijacked and who was pulled off that plane in an incredible, indeed, kind of homeland style um, plot. You know, he was at the time only about 16 years old. And that's and the generation that he's part of, that generation grew up and very clearly basically um said no to a lot of the ways that Lukashenko had ruled for all those years. And I think he had very seriously underestimated the, the depth of that brewing dissent um, among, among this um, young people who have no tolerance, who do live next to Europe, who, you know, Belarus has a thriving IT sector. They work, some of them, for European companies. They have the exposure. They have no tolerance for that Soviet-style um, iron uh, fist rule. So, um, you know, and the, the patience finally ran out about a year ago when, um, over a year ago now, pre-pandemic, uh, when um, uh, Lukashenko rigged another election um, and um, the, his opponent was stronger, stronger upon a random opponent, someone, a newcomer to politics, a young woman, but stronger opponent than he's ever faced before. Um, and um, people, you know, people got really, really angry about him rigging the election and they took to the streets. And of course, that wasn't the headlines for, for a little bit for anyone watching the news will remember. But what hasn't been in the headlines is the fact that this protest have not stopped over the last almost year and a half now. People just keep coming out into the streets, they, showing incredible courage. I mean, we have seen torture, arrest, disappearances. There are more than 400 political pre prisoners in Lukashenko's jails. People have vanished. So many of them have fled. And yet this protest incredibly grassroots, incredibly courageous, incredibly, you know, really dominated by women, actually. Um, it keeps carrying on and on. And uh, it has been, you know, a story of amazing perseverance on the part of the protesters and uh, incredible stubbornness on the part of a dictator who is clearly running out of options. Mm. And so uh, there's nothing more threatening to a person as uh, as you've described Lukashenko than that kind of grassroots people power because it's so uh, less easily targetable, I suppose. You know, you can't necessarily shut that down in the way that you can squirrel away people in jail, for example, which brings us to um, Pradesevich, who was clearly viewed as such a, a huge threat to not just Lukashenko, but the, but the regime in Belarus. Is, is that why he took this audacious action? Was it, was it a personality thing targeting this person in particular, or did he want to make an example um, because it seems like a, a reckless thing to do, a thing that would only draw attention and, you know, ensuing sanctions and so on. Yeah, it seems uh, it seems uh, both reckless and a desperate thing to do. And I think I think it's still almost impossible to fully answer your question. But because what we don't yet know is whether this was a move that was out of desperation or it was a move that, you know, or, or, or Lukashenko decided to do it. Uh, because he felt 
confident enough that he could get away with it. And the only way he would feel confident enough that he would get away with it if he was absolutely sure that he has Moscow's backing, um, right? So uh, he, he wouldn't have done it any other way. I mean, it definitely would. We do know that Lukashenko has flirted with the West. He has not been a very clearly pro-Russian leader over the last, you know, he has all decades. He has always prided himself on taking a stance against Russia and setting up a different system, but also, you know, not going with the West. Um, but, you know, this clearly signals like, Lukashenko's complete departure from any possible, if there was even a drop of it left after a, a year of like uh, horrendous human rights accusations, if there was uh, even a drop of like a, a hint of a possibility that Lukashenko would come around, that is now gone. Hijacking a European airline plane that is flying from one place in Europe to another place in Europe and bringing it down with a fighter jet uh, and hijacking it by inventing a bomb on board of that plane. That is just so, like all of it is so... Uh, so outrageous in some ways that um, there, it will be very, very difficult to imagine that, you know, he can, he can in any way uh, still have any sort of Western lineage as, a, as, an, as an option, as, a, as an alternative. Um, but I don't think it is necessarily a sign of, uh, so in that sense, I guess it is a sign of desperation, but uh, I he is a very pragmatic man. And of course, I don't know how that year last year has changed him, but he is a very pragmatic man. And I don't think he would have done it if he thought that he couldn't get away with it. And the only way he could get away with it if the Russians help him to get away with it. There is no other way. Yeah, well, let's talk about that because you wrote a really great piece for CODA um, and I'm just going to quote from it here. What lessons other authoritarian leaders will draw from this episode depends on whether Lukashenko is allowed to get away with it and Russia appears to be playing a key role in making sure he does. Can you expand on that? Like you say that Belarus has carved out, um, you know, a kind of a space between not trying not to be... Um, you know, a Kremlin proxy state and also, you know, not necessarily knocking on the EU's door for, for membership or something like that. Like, what is Russia's role in all of this? And what is the contemporary relationship between the Russian leadership and the Belarusian leadership like? Lukashenko and Putin have had a very uneasy relationship in the past. Um, they have fallen out. They have gotten back together, you know, sort of they have fallen out. They had made up, um, but it hasn't been, it hasn't been a straightforward and easy relationship. But unquestionably Putin, who has of course himself faced a wave of protests around the poisoning uh, by everyone believes, by we believe by the FSB, the Russian secret service of the opposition leader Navalny, who then you know, chose to return to Russia and ended up going to jail. And he is now in terrible condition uh, in a Russian prison. You know, that provoked a string of protests in, in Russia as well. So Putin made a very clear choice of backing Lukashenko fully um, in the um, in the case of Belarus, as he struggled with the protest at home on his own, you know that the Belarus, uh, the Be Belarus and Russia made the kind of united authoritarian front uh, in this part of the world. So, and it's very 
difficult to imagine that Lukashenko would have survived without Putin's help at the time. Uh, and it is very um, uh, likely that he will need, continue to need Putin's help in order to continue to survive. Um, so um, they are, I would describe it as they're stuck together now. They need each other. Um, that's That's what the relationship is at the moment. Obviously, it's harder to dislodge um, somebody like Lukashenko when they do have whether, I mean, an uneasy backing, let's say, of Putin. But uh, clearly, though, though, would Russia not be a bit ambiguous about supporting such an audacious act? Or is that a bit naive of me, especially when the EU kind of starts to stand to attention? Russia has managed to get away with a lot over the last decade, from annexation to Crimea to poisoning in Salisbury, which killed a British citizen, to um, uh, the shooting down of MH17, a plane over eastern Ukraine, which killed nearly 300 people, including children and many of them European citizens. And the list goes on and on. And Russia has managed to get away with it. So um, Russia is not, Russia's on the offensive. Russia is pushing the boundaries of, you know, in seeing and provoking and how much it can push uh, and um, how, how far back Europe and the West will lean. You know, I'm speaking to from Tbilisi, Georgia. This is a country 20% of which is occupied um, by Russia. And it doesn't make headlines, but, you know, every month or so, or every couple of months, the occupation line, which is a barbed wire fence, moves in deeper and deeper into the Russian, into the Georgian territory. Uh, and each time it's a, you know, it's, 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 it's a provocation or it's a punishment for Georgia's sort of pro-Western ambitions or, you know, Georgia wanting to join NATO and so on. So Russia, um, uh, that's what Russia does. You know, Russia, that has been a pretty consistent uh, foreign policy of Russia is to push as far as it can and see how much it can get away with. And they do get away with with a lot. So I don't see why they would um, necessarily now want to, you know, play by the Western rules, especially when they don't agree with them. And um, they, you know, have arguments that they they use um, to show their supporters and people who are maybe not very happy with Western policies that actually, you know, the West is full of double standards and what Russia is doing is really not very different from, from what the West does elsewhere. And they've certainly done it with this case because bringing up the story of Eva Morales, the Bolivian president, whose plane was brought down, ha- was forced, not brought down, was forced to land in Vienna because um, the Americans suspected that Edward Snowden was on board and they wanted to arrest him. So a very different case, but um, very useful case for um, in in the Russian, you know, for 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 what about tree that Russians have perfected and use very very well to build their own case. Mm. Yeah, you wrote very, very well in, in your piece about that kind of whataboutery. But was there any difference between Russia's usual response to 
general like Kremlin plans gone wrong. Uh, not that this was necessarily one of those to the immediate response here. The difference, uh, what what made me, um, you know, what the, 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 the observation uh, that I had is that uh, w- when things go wrong for the Kremlin, when, when something um, is revealed that wasn't part of the plan, uh, they normally go quiet for a while. The Russian propaganda machine goes quiet. So they don't comment on things like, Salisbury is a good example, the Salisbury Novichok poisoning or the poisoning of the opposition leader Navalny, uh, also with Novichok. Uh, or that same story of MH17, you know, for a while, Russians were just really quiet. Um, and by Russians, I mean the Russian state media, which is often, you know, we don't, we, we can't really, um, we don't really hear, but we can't ask questions of Putin and people in the Kremlin, because that's not how things work with Russia. So uh, journalists covering Russia are sort of forced to look at the messages and signs through the mouthpiece of the Kremlin, which is the Russian state television. And very often, you know, it goes quiet for a while, then they come up with a message or they kind of come up with a strategy, a mix of messages, and they put it out. And it's a very, it's very coordinated. I mean, it's a they've they've perfected it you know they're very professional in the way they put their messaging out so um in this case they didn't wait uh they almost straight away they covered first of all they covered that uh they covered the um hijacking all of the media covered the hijacking and um straight away they put forward that argument um that well what about eva morales you know that you know this seems crazy but what what about um uh, uh, the double standards and the times when the west has done something of the sort and of course this is also accompanied with you know i was watching the main um russian sort of flagship weekly current affairs show and it's all about the context in which they cover it as well you know um the um they talked about the other uh, people, the Russians who had been arrested by the Americans in other places around the world. But the examples they brought were all sort of, um, you know, criminal bosses or uh, arms traffickers and so on. They didn't talk. They talked about Raman Protasevich as this, you know, a guy who's wanted on terrorism charges, um, not, you know, a so-called journalist, but they didn't Obviously, they don't give any of the context to the protests and so on. So they really put him in the context of this, like other, do- you know, dodgy suspects arrested by the Americans, and um, and then bring the kind of the 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 what about Eva Morales case, and all of that. Obviously, none of this is a proof that Russian. I, I have absolutely no evidence that suggests that Russian had anything to do um, with the with the hijacking or it had their explicit approval uh we have we have no evidence of that uh but i think the messaging does suggest that russians are planning on backing lukashenko um i could be wrong but that's my guess at the moment Mm. and what about the counter to that because the eu is is, you know as as a bureaucratic entity is is pretty good at moving quite slowly often to address um autocratic figures and indeed sensational incidents such as this, unless its people or interests are directly impacted, which in this case uh, they were. What actions do you think could the bloc take that would actually have an impact um, aside from, you know, sealing off airspace or 
um, you know, sanctions that may not actually get to the heart of the matter without acting uh, or feeding into the narrative of being interventionist, being this like, you know, neo-imperialist force, let's say. I think the Belarusian opposition probably has um, a lot of ideas and some of them we're seeing them being implemented and there are plenty of people within the European Union who have ideas on how to um, how to punish Lukashenko for what he has done. Now, so far, you know, we've seen, I mean, I, you know, on the, all these groups um, on Belarus and it's just like constant pinging of Telegram channels saying, oh, another sanction added, another airline's not flying from Minsk, another, you know, th- th- this um, happened, you know, a cycling championship cancelled in Minsk and so on. There is... Um, no question that Lukashenko will feel the effect even of what's happening now and bigger packages of sanctions are being prepared and so on. There is no question that Lukashenko will feel the effects of some of it. Um, and then the question becomes like how far Russia will go to protect him and can you really have the effective um, uh, policy of, against Lukashenko without addressing um, the Russian issue as well. And arguably, it's a possibility, but it's something that I'm, I, I'm sure the European uh, politicians and officials are discussing and thinking about. Now, it will much be much, much harder to, um, and it has proven to be much harder for um, for uh, the EU to take action against Russia. I mean, Belarus might be might be a much easier case. Um, so then it's like, how effective will it be if you don't address the elephant in the room, which is, you know, Russians can help Lukashenko survive. Uh, so, you know, it's so much of it is up in the air, and I'm sure it's, I'm sure the plants are not set in stone, neither in Brussels nor in Moscow either, right? Uh, I'm sure, and, and the Russian government is very good at kind of playing by ear and being extremely tactical and sort of identifying the weaknesses um, within its opponents in the West. And that is how... Russia sees the West, they are the opponents, right? Uh, not not partners. So, um, and that's what Russians will be doing. That's why so many people are saying that it's incredibly important for the EU to act swiftly, to be very, speak in one voice, to be very determined, to like really be imposing sanctions and so on, because, um, you know, there will be um, uh, those who are watching for opportunities to sort of, um, to 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 undermine that, um, and of course, I think the bigger question just for the world is, you know, whatever EU does, it's not just about Russia. It's not even about. It's not just about Belarus. It's not about this part of the world. It's about just you know the rule, the the law and order, and international law and order uh, globally, really, because authoritarians are watching this and. They will be seeing what they can. It will be giving them ideas and they will be seeing what they can get away with. And, you know, I was just looking at the Freedom House report that says that there there are 600 cases of what is called the transnational justice, victims of transnational uh, transnational justice. Yeah. So people who have fled their uh, to uh, yeah, transnational justice, people who have fled their homes and are seeking safety somewhere else and are being threatened by their sort of home regime. And of course, immediately China comes to mind, uh, you know, from the Chinese Communist Party, um, 
there's so many people that Chinese Communist Party regards as hostile from Tibet, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Uyghurs, human rights abusers. And, you know, all these people, and we're talking about possibly thousands of people who will have to rethink travel plans that cross Chinese airspace or um, any country that Beijing um, has influence in. So it could be, you know, if uh, unless we unless we see really serious action and a very united stand uh, and determined stand that, you know, EU is not known for, uh, then I think this incident can have very serious global implications. Mm. Before you go, Natalie, and this has been hugely informative, thank you very much. I was just wondering how the the this grassroots opposition that has been building has responded to this um, you know, somebody else who's in exile is the the opposition leader uh, that you mentioned or, or the candidate who a lot of people say won the election, um, Svetlana uh, Tikhanovskaya. Uh, she's currently in exile in Lithuania and actually curiously has quite a connection to Ireland. She was one of the so-called, um, what were known as the Chernobyl children who were hosted in Ireland for respite um, repeatedly in, in the 90s in her childhood. And she stayed with, with a family in Tipperary here and, and returned uh, well into her 20s, I believe. But how has she and the people around her and indeed the kind of the grassroots movement against um, Lukashenko responded? Um, that's interesting. I didn't actually know about Tikhanovskaya's Ireland connection. Uh, you know, they... They responded basically by ringing all the bells of uh, the harm that they can, that possibly can. Obviously, a lot of the people, a lot of the opposition leadership, uh, and those who are not in jail or have gone missing, they are uh, they are in exile. Um, I, of course, it has huge implications for them personally because obviously they will, you know, it, it just shows you that um, how dangerous things can be for them if, because you know. Roman thought he was flying from one safe country to another. And he there he is now facing death penalty in Belarus and being rolled out on television, you know, looking beaten up and confessing uh, in what clearly looks like a forced confession, obviously, to plotting against the regime. I mean, what a terrifying thing it must be to be an opposition leader, you know, anywhere in the world, to be honest, but Belarusian opposition leader and to be looking at that. Um, I think they're also being obviously very opportunistic and uh, managing to get themselves to um, to G7 meeting in London and meeting with um, just jumping on the opportunity to make their case clear and to lobby hard um, and so on. But, you know, we can't underestimate in what a terrible situation the Belarusian opposition uh, is overall obviously crippled by the fact that they're abroad, uh, for most of them, unable to, you know, be properly fighting the fight that they want to be fighting um, and expressing the opinions that they want to be expressing. And then, you know, there is a daily uh, feed, a news feed of arrests, disappearances, people being locked up, uh, you know, just constant, you know, whoever is left. And we're not just talking about only journalists and activists. We're also talking about people who have been spotted going to protests at some point, you know, just people who are um, just just regular people who are not necessarily very political, but who have an opinion about what the, the direction they want their country to head. So the level of oppression uh, and suppression of these protests and just 
um, is is unbelievable. So uh, the Belarusian opposition is in a very very difficult situation, and they will you know definitely be trying to do their best to get as much out of this, and frankly to save one of their own um, from you know he faces execution. That was his last words to a fellow passenger where. I will be killed here. I will be executed here. And he's not the only one. There are more than 400 other people in jail, in Lukashenko's jails, right on the edge of Europe. So um, so all of it has really big implications, not just for Belarus, not just for this region, but for, for wider Europe as well. Mm. And finally, when you kind of look at the, the overall vista and you mentioned um, a new generation growing up who you know, can't unsee a particular type of change or desire. In your kind of analysis of the the region, do you think that there is hope that, that, that these kind of authoritarian chains can be broken and that, that a new generation can mold, mold their country how, how they want to with the freedoms that they desire? A, I suppose it's a big <laughs> hypothetical. I, it is a big question. It is a big question, and certainly a question that you know I I I I think about a lot, and it's very hard to be watching what's happening in Russia with the opposition leader Navalny. Basically, uh, at some point, almost at his deathbed, he's slightly better now, but certainly in a terrible state of health, uh, and could definitely die and you know, Russians, the Russian government doesn't seem to care. And this, um, and and the way that the Russian government has just ruthlessly crushed uh, a very, um, you know, a, a, a very vibrant protest movement in support of Navalny. And you see that, and you see the facial recognition cameras being rolled out across Moscow and the big cities and people, you know, being visited in the middle of the night because they've been identified and because they went to the protest and they have been identified. And you see the space tightening and almost every, you know, and, and, and you see all the legal tools that the Russian government is using, like um, uh, foreign agents act, for example, that they have now introduced. And that means that if you're a journalist working for any any organization outside of Russia, you basically um, are a foreign agent. And what you're doing is illegal. And you see this, you know, then being implemented in other countries. You know, it took seven years for Russia to come up with the Foreign Agents Act. But Nicaragua, Nicaragua is taking that blueprint and is implementing it in less than a year time. The Belarus is that other countries in this region are considering the same legislation. And it certainly feels like the era of opening and hope is sadly somewhere, somewhere um, is, is behind us. And that what's coming is the tightening authoritarianism, but authoritarianism of, of a new sort and one that uses, you know, both both lies. They've always that's always was the case. The lies were always part of the authoritarian toolkit, but now it has the technology to power it as well. And um, I think the future of protests are really 
we don't, I don't know. I couldn't make, I don't have a crystal ball and I couldn't, I couldn't make a prediction about what, what, what can happen to the future of process. But I think, um, and, and our ability, like no matter where we live to defend our rights and defend the things that we believe in and express our opinions. But I am pretty convinced that um, there is no future to protests and to these basic freedoms. uh, If, a lot of the tech giants and a lot of the tech companies rethink the way that their their uh, platforms are used, not just in the United States, right, but also in in other countries. So, um, you know, a, a quick example: the story we're looking into right now is YouTube uh, selling um, the Russian state, te- Belarusian state television, selling YouTube advertisements off the back of. Um, forced confession videos right um just just as an example of you know how these regimes and tech western tech collide together and and help they support the regimes so i think you know it's impossible to imagine uh it's impossible to imagine that uh without kind of a pressure from in the West on tech platforms and on the governments, um, things in parts of the world where freedom is more scarce and more fragile uh, will actually, you know, come back, flourish and have, will have a future. Mm. Well, to definitely keep up on that, codastory.com is a place that you're going to want to be paying attention to. Um, Natalia Antalava, the editor-in-chief there and co-founder, thank you so much um, for joining us in United Ireland. It's great to talk to you again and hopefully we'll be seeing each other in real life soon. Hope so too. Thanks so much. What's getting in the sea this week, Andrea? Splish, splash. I'm taking a bath. <laughs> I am dying to go for a little swim swim but I would also maybe think about taking up an extra hobby as well as swimming maybe some golf and luckily this week Port Marnock Golf Club voted to admit women to the club after 127 years um, and there was a fanfare from the golf, golf clubs being like oh look great we've decided to let women in it's like babes you've literally taken the Supreme Court case recently to stop this happening so let's not get too uh, uh, stuck in the fanfare and also the fact that you didn't have women in there for 127 years is not the best but yahoo off we go golf time uh, to the grass desert as they say isn't it um why women would want to be part of that golf club is uh, another another matter um but also another matter to getting in the seas is in rat mines uh, anti-homeless structures were placed around a doorway where a man had been living for i think over a year um who and it just really was a, a, a vision of how how much we have an anti-homeless rhetoric and and what you're meant to do if you are homeless it, and the efforts and lengths people will go to to not have to deal with it and to not have some fucking empathy like i just thought it was the pits that's definitely getting in the sea and now it's bananas Okay, this is what is close to my heart. And, okay, so 
pedestrianisation is a hot topic right now. But it came in on St. William Street, which is my, my, my stomping ground. And when it came in, I don't know if I've talked about this in the pod, but I had to like get a map out and go, no, that, I, that is wrong what they've said they're pedestrianising. That makes absolutely no sense. It can't be that much because it went from Exchequer Street up five doors and that was it. And I was like, no, th- there's no way that can be the pedestrianisation. So it's but basically I, that fancy macaron shop on the corner up to, let's say, uh, just beyond Lemon. Yes. Yeah. So it's five doorways. Basically. You could probably do it in maybe... 20 steps. Fifth, or I would say 10 really long, stretchy steps. Five. Yes, it's not very much. Uh, and you have a look at it and you're like, this makes no sense because there's what pede- what action are you going to take in that pedestrianisation area? And there's bollards that close off cars turning up that road to give way for this tiny bit stretch of road. But there's no pedestrianisation living going on in that stretch. And the reason is because the Brent Thomas car park exits there. So the whole rest of the road is now acting as an exit ramp for Brent Thomas car park. But the thing is, so you're, you're getting, if you're a driver, inconvenience that you can't take a right for, for no reason, really, with the bollards there. And you're not getting any joy of pedestrianisation. And uh, Brent Thomas are utilising the whole street. So there's, there's no benefit at all. And the reason being, I think it's because of zoning that Brent Thomas won't change their, um, their exit um, because they lost 30% in revenue when they had a trial weekend of it. And so because of one business, the whole businesses on the street who are calling for it, at like at, I think it was 95% of the businesses want, want pedestrianisation. Uh, three out of four people who are travelling into town are doing it by foot or bicycle. And in a survey, I think there was a very high percentage of people who wanted this. So everyone kind of wants it, but they're being held to ransom by one car park. And it just is bananas that that is able to happen. And now it's time for... Our fave bits. What are your fave bits this week, Andrea? My fave bits this week is the announcement of the Dorky Book Festival that I get to be in. I am going to be talking about the Roaring Twenties with the ex-editor of The Economist and Eva McLeitzett and Mark Little News. So we'll look forward to how that goes. Amazing. <laughs> Gas. But they've so many great uh, speakers on the thing. Bernie Saunders is talking, um, uh, Michael G. Higgins. It is definitely well worth having a look. It's virtual. It's from one of the towers. So it's Dorky Festival from the Tower. So have a look at their website and get into the vibes of that. And then the other thing is, I think it's so funny because you have as one of your fave bits, um, Sinead O'Connor's book. You have hers. I won't give it away, but you have hers book of the week. (laughs) Um, But the difference being my fave bit is actually the quote she made on the New York Times article. She did Mm. a post about going health is not, um, is you can't measure health against a sick society. And that's, I've paraphrased that, but I just thought it just sticks with me so much when you're like, when she was thrown so much um, 
under the bus for her mental health and she's literally like are you actually joking like the world is in bits and you're you're taking it out on me I just keep thinking about that so they're my favourites Go Sinead I have loads of fave bits this week um one of them is I'm just I'm not going to go too into it because I think I might talk about it more next week. Uh, it's The Secret to Superhuman Strength by Alison Bechdel, her new graphic novel. Um, blow my mind. I'm going to save that juice for next week. Um, my other fave bits, St. Sisters tunes from their upcoming album are all brilliant. Um, I love, is it Oh My God, Oh Canada? And then they uh, released uh, their latest song, Manchester Air. And they also released a beautiful live performance video of that uh, by the sea in Dublin. Gorgeous. The production on their, um, on the songs is so great. They've done everything themselves. It sounds absolutely amazing. Big up, Saint Sister. One of my favourite songs this year. Yeah, karaoke song's great, yeah. Um, my other fave bit is bookshops being open because obviously I am an addict and <laughs> it's out of control. I put way too much pressure myself. But at the same time, I enjoy engaging in my addiction and I enjoy being back in bookshops. I was in Books Upstairs last week and I was in Chapters this week. I know lots of people are big chats about um the fact that upstairs, the secondhand section isn't open. Let's maybe find out what's happening with that. Anyway, um, that is very enjoyable for me and therefore it's one of my fave bits. Um, my other fave bit is I managed to catch a screener of um, the new Phil Innit documentary by Ema Reynolds called Songs for While I'm Away. Keep an eye out for that. Uh, it is absolutely beautiful. Love Ema Reynolds. Um, a lot of people would have seen her film The Farthest, which was about the Voyager space exploration program. Um, Project Picnic is at Project Picnic Dub on Instagram. They make delicious picnic packages of joy. If you're planning a little garden party and you don't want to cook or if you want to bring something over to someone's gaff, for meat eaters out there, one of the things that they have are these unreal pistachio scotch eggs with Sri Lankan ketchup thing. Like once you start eating them, if you eat meat, you just won't stop. I am also... I've been very sad that I'm a vegetarian the last week and a half, just FYI. All of the amazing reviews The Eighth is getting is another of my fave bits. Well done, star of that documentary, Andre Horn. Not star. <laughs> I know you hate it so much. There has never been anyone who loathes this kind of attention than Andrea, which is why I'm really enjoying that it's like four stars in The Guardian, four stars in The Empire, five stars in The Irish Times. It's like, you're going to be famous. Yeah, but that's, for, that's for the filmmakers. So they're getting the stars. I know they are getting the stars, but you are still in the film like. As an arc to tell a narrative. Yeah, I know. I'm not saying like it's all you. Um, You're welcome world. I made this film. (laughs) But well done all of the uh, the three directors and all of the production team and all the crew and all that kind of stuff and all the people in it. Um, Really great to see. I'm so delighted for them because they've had such a shit journey to the release of this film yeah. and I am so glad it's getting such a good reaction because they're three of the nicest women and I couldn't be happier for them. My other fave bit is um, the Positive Space photo exhibition which was on billboards around Dublin City last year has moved into um, Brian Thomas Champions of Pedestrianisation and um, there's really amazing images uh, up there in a gallery but one of the th- things about it is is that you can actually buy the prints of the photographs 
and they're 120 quid if you go on the Brian Thomas website and some of the, them are amazing. Like there's beautiful work by George de Berg and by B plus amazing photo of Madlib. And there's just really gorgeous stuff. So if you actually want something, a new bit for your gaff or for a present for someone, um, for the quality that you're getting of, of the photography, it's a pretty awesome price, even though 120 blips is obviously a lot of money, but for what you're getting from it, it's, it's kind of extraordinary. They're beautiful pictures. Beautiful beautiful so check that out and now it's time for book of the week book of the week oh i wonder what it is what's the book this week Una? <laughs> So the book of the week this week is Sinead O'Connor's Rememberings now i don't think it's out till the right at the end of May um, first June so there's probably like I think there probably is like an embargo on it or whatever so I won't look you know what Sinead O'Connor's life is I mean um, there's not going to be a tremendous amount of spoilers but I suppose what is exceptional about this book is that I think it's kind of introducing people to to an author as well as a as a musical artist and um, how her lens on things is extraordinary her clarity is amazing. Um, I'm actually reviewing the book for the Irish Times. It should be in this weekend. And I kind of had to read it a couple of times to, because because how she, her perspective on things is so, ref- ah, what is it? It's not even refreshing. It's just that, like, as you say, Andrea, somebody who's gone through so much stuff, who was so demonized in the media and how she's journeyed through that, often with difficulty, but the perspective is so noble or something. It's, 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 it's an extraordinary book and I'd really, really recommend it. It's, I don't think it's what people expect. It's not your kind of traditional music memoir um, and it's really, really great. And that is why it is Book of the Week. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all our design. And this week's tuna chicken roll, I chose it this morning as the sun was splitting the stones. DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince, summertime. I've been Unum Lally. And I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was the Belarus Explainer. Drums, please. <laughs> A groove slightly transformed Just a bit of a break from the norm Just a little something to break the monotony Of all that hardcore dance That has gotten to be a little bit out of control It's cool to dance But what about a groove that soothes and moves romance Give me a soft subtle mix And if it ain't broke then don't try to fix it And think of the summers of the past Adjust the bass and let the alpine blast Pop in my CD and let me run around and put your car on cruise and lay back cause it's summertime.
sort of a buzz But back then I didn't really know what it was But now I see what happened is The way that people respond to summer madness The weather is hot and girls are dressing less And checking out the fellas to tell them who's best Riding around in your Jeep or your Benzos Or in your Nissan sitting on Lorenzo's Back in Philly we be out in the park A place called the Plateau is where everybody go Guys out hunting and girls doing likewise Honking at the honey in front of you with the light eyes She turn around to see what you beeping at It's like the summer's a natural aphrodisiac And with a pen and pad I compose this rhyme To hip you and to get you equipped for the summertime Definition of summer madness. 